God bless you, Drizzly Williams, and welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Blind Boy Podcast. I put out a full podcast yesterday. It was a Jungian analysis of underpants via the writings of St. Augustine. But today you're getting a bonus podcast because there's a very important housing protest happening this Saturday, the 26th of November, 2022, beginning at 1pm in Parnell Square in Dublin, and it's called the Raise the Roof protest. Housing, rent, homelessness, the mental health crisis which can't be separated from the housing crisis, investment funds, dereliction, illegal evictions, slum landlords, violent heavy-handed evictions being carried out by faceless private security in unmarked vans. Ireland is becoming an unlivable country and we need to exercise our democratic right to protest this. So this week I'm going to have a chat with Rory Hearn, who has been a guest on this podcast twice before. He's a lecturer in Maynooth, he's an expert on public policy with over 20 years experience. And why I like chatting to Rory is because he's an authority on housing policy. And when the housing crisis seems very complicated and difficult to understand, and obfuscated by inaccessible language. Rory is somebody who can democratise this information and he gives me a sense of hope. So I'm going to chat to Rory now about this housing protest this Saturday, the 26th of November, what it's about, what the aims are, why it's happening and why you should participate if you can. Also, I'm going to give Rory's book a little plug as a thank you for coming onto this podcast. Rory didn't ask me to plug his book, but I'm going to do it anyway. He's got a book out called Gaffs, Why No One Can Get a House and What We Can Do About It, which is a bestseller. Check it out. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, if it brings you entertainment, comfort, solace, joy, please consider supporting this podcast on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If you can't afford that, don't worry listen to this podcast for free because the person who can afford it is paying for you to listen for free everyone gets a podcast i get to earn a living here's my chat with rory Hearn. cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, Rory, there's a very important housing protest happening on the 26th of November up in Dublin. And I'm bringing you on today because I want to ask you, why are people protesting? What are the aims of it? And why should people be protesting? Yeah, thanks a million for having me back. And I just want to say that there's been an incredible reaction um, to the podcast that you had me on uh, before. And really hearing from people and so many people have contacted me, so many of your listeners about the devastating impact of the housing crisis that it's having on a generation. Wow. 
So you're getting personal stories. He, personal stories. People telling me, you know, I'm emigrating. I'm leaving this country. I love it. But I see no future here because me and my partner can't get a home. We're sick putting all our money into rent. We just feel despair. Uh, we feel like our country has abandoned us. And people talking about the mental health impact of it, the sense of not seeing a future, anxiety, stress. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in my chat with um, the last guest I had on was the president, Michael D. Higgins. Yeah. And what I spoke about with Michael D. Higgins is I said that I, I, I brought up a, a psychologist called Viktor Frankl, who's an existentialist psychologist. And I said, a quote from Frankl is, a human being can put up with any how, so long as he has a why. Yeah. And the thing with, with Ireland, people are so, people are worrying about rent, housing. They feel so crushed by it that they're not inspired to enjoy life and to achieve meaning. They absolutely can't. And we're denying them a possibility of a life in this country. And, you know, it's, I, I in my book, the new book that I've written since I had, you had me on last, yeah. um, I came across a French philosopher called Gaston Bachelard, who wrote a book called Poetics of Space. And he talks amazing about the, the deep meaning of what home means to us. And, what, and he describes it as being the shelter of the imagination. It is our sanctuary. And it is the place where in which we can be. The reality is without a home of your own, you can't be. And we have one in 10 adults in this country. One in 10 are adults living at home with their parents, basically being infantilized. We have, you know, nurses, guards, teachers, our key workers in this economy and society can't go to coppers, get together, meet up, get a home and start their life. They can go to coppers and meet up, but that's where it ends. And, and, yeah. and they just don't see a future. And you ask, why do we need to protest? We have to protest because this is an emergency. It's an existential crisis Yes, for this country. It, it, it raises the question of what is it all about if we can't provide people a home? What is the purpose of it all? What's the name of the protest, Rory? And what is the outcome of this protest? What's the desired outcome? So it's been called by Raise the Roof, which is a, it's a broad coalition, like an alliance of different groups who've come together. And it's a bit like people will think back to the marriage equality referendums and the repeal, the eighth referendums. And they'll, they'll remember the campaigns like Together for Yes, which were all different groups who came together um, and people put aside different differences and, you know, you know, disagreements they'd have over things. And they said, we need to work together towards a common cause. And it's the same idea in this campaign. So there's the trade unions. All the trade unions are there, which is great. Um, all the opposition parties are there. The people like the National Women's Council of Ireland, the NGOs who are working on homelessness, Focus Ireland, Threshold. Um, they're all there. They have all come together to say we need to say enough that something has to change radically. And they're, 
the analysis is the analysis that I've you know provided for quite a while is that housing policy in this country has utterly failed to deliver affordable homes. And the reason why is because it's the wrong policy, that it is over-reliant on the market, on investor funds, and we haven't developed our own state capacity to build like a state construction company. Um, So there's a number of things that this campaign is calling for, like a significant increase in funding and the building of social and affordable housing. Like, you know... (laughs) There, I don't know if you're aware. The government is putting six billion this year and next year, six billion into this so-called rainy day fund. They're putting it away, and you're going. There, there is a generation who are literally drowning in the flood of the housing crisis now. That money should be put into setting up a public construction company, development company that would hire construction workers, all the trades, give them proper pensionable jobs and guarantee the provision of housing that would go to the not-for-profit housing providers like Okulon, the housing associations Mm -hmm. that would go to the local authorities. There's a thing now... And we had this once, didn't we, in the 1930s? We did, all through the, the kind of, all the way up to the 1980s. Councils built public housing. They, and we had a national building agency you know, we've done this before. And to use the devil's advocate argument, right, because I have heard certain politicians who we would call centre-right neoliberals, I've heard them say, oh, we can't do that because uh, large-scale social housing leads to ghettoization. You don't want that again. I think it was Radiker. I think it was Radiker, but I can't be sure. But what that, do you say to something like that? That is an ideological viewpoint. It is a viewpoint that is not actually related to reality because social housing didn't fail in this country. Social housing was failed because they stopped building it and they stopped maintaining it and they stopped investing in it. So it became narrowed down. And they marginalized the communities. Exactly. They utterly marginalized them and they created the stigma and they said, oh, that doesn't work. Social housing doesn't work. Of course it works. It, it built communities in this country. It still provides housing. And you look at the likes of Austria in Vienna, mm-hmm. half the housing is social housing because it's mm-hmm. for a range of incomes. That was the big thing. They went from social council housing, public housing, providing, you know, uh, guards, teachers, uh, you know, tradespeople, homes. Social housing for everybody, not just for people who are very poor and facing homelessness. Exactly. And in order to have that, it means you don't commodify property, really. You don't commodify housing and property. Property isn't something necessarily you earn loads of money from. Exactly. And that's the fundamental kind of cultural shift in thinking. Like we can't, we don't, policy doesn't have to just change. The way we think and understand housing has to change. We absolutely commodified it. We turned it into this investment in the Celtic Tiger years, this idea that you make loads of money from property. Yeah. And who says that's right? Exactly. Who says it? And and we hear all the policies about landlords. How can we keep landlords in the market? I'm going, you have it all wrong. Let the landlords go. Give Mm -hmm. the hopes. Renters need to own their home. You know, if you Mm -hmm. own multiple properties, you're shutting out someone else from being able to buy a property. Mm -hmm. The nature of landlordism is exclusion of some people from homes and the accumulation of wealth from renters and denying them the ability to get a home. And when you look, what pisses me off about that, Rory, is like if I, 
if if I have a 50 bag of cannabis and I get caught with it, I get brought to court and I might face uh, jail time, right? Because drugs are considered a terrible thing that's destroying society by the law. Yeah. I, well, what the fuck is destroying society right now and causing debts and causing misery? To me, it's our housing policy. It, it absolutely is. And you look at the health impacts, the mental health impacts, you look at the denial of, we are actually, in a sense, stunting the potential of our country. And, you know, I, I talk about, you know, you talk about death, you talk about, you know, mental health. There's over 3,000 children currently in emergency accommodation in this country. They mm-hmm. are being traumatized yeah. by, the, by the loss of their home. There are thousands of children, tens of thousands of children and their families living in the private rental sector right now across this country who are literally living in terror about mm-hmm. the landlord evicting them and selling up. Like, and that's think not of something the, a child should have to worry about. That's too course. complex for a fucking child. Of course it is. And their parents, how the hell can they parent? Yeah, there's no emotional regulation there. The child grows up with a parent who isn't emotionally regulated because the parent is worrying about where they're going to be next week. Exactly. I've actually spoken to psychologists who are working with children who are living in emergency accommodation. And they talk about the children being in a constant state of hypervigilance, mm-hmm. which means that because the housing stress that their parents are living in, the mm-hmm. children take that on as their own stress. Mm-hmm. And they basically live in this constant state of fight or flight. So at school then, they think everybody is out to get them. They can't yeah. concentrate. They can't relax. They're ashamed. So that's systemic marginalization. And you're setting those kids up for a higher risk of things like addiction issues. Exactly. Uh, severe mental health issues. I mean, we know this. With this, this is what happens. These kids are being traumatized. They are absolutely been traumatized. And I said, it's not just the children in emergency accommodation. It's the tens of thousands who are with families in the private rental sector who are in this state of yeah. chronic stress. And I would like we talk about institutionalization, you know, that what happened in the mother and baby homes, you know, we've, the, you know, the absolutely right demands for compensation, for redress. Mm-hmm. We're going to see this down the line. The children who are going to emergency accommodation who are homeless today. Will be, there will be redress schemes in the future. Because our state knows about this. So it's our Magdalene laundries, basically, like with direct provision in, in, you know, in 15, 20 years time, we are going to see visibly the terror and impact of this. And then our generation right now is going to have to go, why didn't I do something about it? Why didn't I do something about it? Like the way our parents had to say when it came to Magdalene laundries. Absolutely. The state knows about it. The government knows about it. We know about it. So when you ask, why should we protest? But we kind of know about it. That's the thing, Rory. A bit, like a bit like the Magdalene Laundries. It's like I can go around Dublin or Limerick and I can look at a hotel and I can have an idea that there's loads of families in there. But it is still quite kept away from of my eyes. Is, yeah. You yeah, know, It's hidden. It's, hidden. it's yeah. invisible. They are invisible. They are invisible children. Mm-hmm. And it is yeah. wrong that we allow that. And, and I think what about the importance of the protest is that we have to stand up as a society for not just those children who are homeless, which we absolutely should, but for all of us, you know, for the young people who are and not so young, who are adults stuck at home, who feel ashamed themselves, who mm-hmm. feel like they've failed. You haven't yeah. failed. This is a fault of policy. This is a fault of government decisions not yours, and it can change. We can change this. 
And I think the importance of the protest is it will bring all those people hopefully together to see that they're not alone. It's not just them, that there are tens and hundreds of thousands affected by this crisis. And in coming together, if nothing else, it at least gives people a sense of we are not alone. Because it is incredible how after those podcasts that we did, Mm -hmm. those people contacted me and I had in my own podcast got some of them on to tell their story. And other people would contact me and say, thank you. Thank you for at least I feel I'm no longer alone. I feel somebody is hearing me. I feel that my story is out there at last. It's being told and someone is trying to do something about it. So I think the starting point has to be we as a society say, no, this, we're not accepting this. This is not normal and it has to change. Another thing I want to interrogate is, so even myself, Rory, right, as an Irish person, I almost feel queasy or I feel like I'm being bold or doing something wrong by using my podcast to ask people to go to a protest. I feel like it, 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 it's, it doesn't feel healthy. It, it feels like I'm inciting a fucking riot or something absurd like that when yeah. actually what I'm doing is, no, I'm asking people, I'm saying here's an opportunity to exercise your democratic right as a citizen to protest. Here, here's your opportunity and I'm telling you about it. But yet I have a guilt and a fear which I know is is very specifically Irish because we don't, we're not very protesty, and we have a bad history of it. And when I think of protests, I think of it either ending historically in a terrible massacre or us just going absolutely mad. What What, what is it with Irish people and protest and why are we not very protesty? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know what? I feel the exact same. Like, in calling for this protest. In calling for something which is a right. No, up and it peacefully is. I, exercise I, I democracy. It. Yeah, I feel it. Every tweet I send about this protest, I think and I stop for a second and I go, because people say to me, what's an academic doing calling for a protest? Mm-hmm. What's an academic? You know, you're not you're supposed to. You're also a citizen though. I am, of course. Absolutely. But this, I'm, I'm agreeing. I'd say I feel the same thing. It's this pressure on us to conform And I think it goes back to like there's multiple kind of causes behind it. It goes back to our Catholic church upbringing. You know, you don't speak Mm -hmm. up about things. The the repression, you know, our own traumas we have suffered. The sense of, you know, oh, we should just really just be quiet and just accept things. And Mm -hmm. we blame ourselves. We don't. And you want to be. Yeah. (laughs) You want to almost be nice to other people. You don't want to go out and protest and say, ah, someone's doing it bad because you don't really want to think. They're not doing what they could be doing. But I do think there's a real yeah, there's pressure. As well, it's almost like it, there's a part of me that goes, uh, add the poor old government, they're trying their best. They're tr- they really are, aren't they? Like, you know, they have, the, they have us at their heart. They just, sometimes they're a bit, bit misguided, you know, a bit yeah. lost. Like, you know, we... And when I speak to you, you say to me, actually, no, blind boy, this, this is a, quite a deliberate ideological policy. It absolutely is. And, it's a, and choices are being made by adults who are in power. And we as citizens don't have to put up with that. No, we don't. We absolutely don't. And I think that's, we have to see that countries across the world, you know, central to democracy and Habermas and, you know, the great, you know, philosophical Democrats, like demos means the people. 
Democracy mm-hmm. is supposed to be the rule of the people. Like, mm-hmm. you know, protest is central to a democratic society. You know, it's, it's civil, you know, peaceful, um, civil disobedience is civil protest. That is central. That, that is something that we have to hold dear. We have to be able to do this. And as a mature society... There you go. You're also exercising maturity. That's the important thing about protest. When my little fear in my belly is that it, it feels immature, it feels loud, yeah. it feels like a tantrum. Now, I'm not yeah. saying this is right. I'm just honestly reflecting on my own inner flaws and wondering where they came from on, on a, a psychosocial level. But it's like, no, 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 it's it's very mature and it's a right. And people fucking died for this right for us to protest peacefully. And you, you also have to think as well, you know, down through the history of this country, our, our state, our governments, our ruling classes, whatever we want to call them, the people in power, business, they created this idea that the people were always to blame. So in the yeah. economic crisis of the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, the young people were just told emigrate. You know, it yeah. was the, the, we treated our cattle better than we treated our young people. You know, it was this, um, and this myth came out, this idea that, oh, the best thing Ireland exported was its, was its people. And you go, yeah. how fucked up is that? That you yeah. think it's a great thing that you export your kids? It's like, we come up with all these mad ideas about, oh, it's a good thing that people emigrate. You're going, what? These are our And kids. that is so insecure as well. It's like, it's like every emigrant is considered a cultural ambassador to tell the rest of the world that we're not as bad as people say we are. I, I think it's also, it's on emotional, psychological level, it is part of our repression, part of our inability to express sadness, upset, connection, loss, that we, we repress our feelings of anger. We repress mm-hmm. our feelings of sadness because that is, goes back to the Catholic Church. It goes back to our you know, lack of, of um, understanding of mental health of, you know, lack of, of enough of us being in therapy. I think it goes down to that basic level. It's an interesting uh, analogy there, Rory, because in psychology on the individual level rather than the larger societal level, a person who has issues with fear of conflict, they fear conflict or arguments with other people because what their fear is is that they'll explode. They yeah. get too angry. So much is repressed that yeah. they can't healthily engage in an argument or conflict, so they become passive aggressive. They avoid in case the fear is, oh no, what if I shout? What if I scream? And that's that's like my little thing in my belly. It's like, oh no, what if everyone goes up and, and has a riot? Yeah. And I shouldn't think like that. I don't think a, a, a French person would think like that. I spoke to a German a person at the weekend in, in Brussels when I was doing a gig, and I was just saying to them, oh Jesus, things are very bad in Ireland with the uh, the mental health system and also with the housing system, things are very bad. And the German person turned to me very quickly and said, wow, you must be doing a lot of protests. People must be very angry. And I just went silent. I couldn't believe that this German person turned around so quickly with this solution of that sounds awful. You must be protesting. I said, no, not really. We're not. And it was a culture shock for me. It was a culture shock. Yeah. In countries like France and Germany, Maybe they just have a history of protest and asking for things and getting them. We don't really have that, do we? We don't have it, but then it's also part of what is the history that we're told. 
you know, and what is the the what is the, the the kind of when we look back, even in our recent history, like we had massive protests over the water charges. Like water massive. charges is a lovely one to bring up. Yeah. No, like really huge, like hundreds of thousands of people. People protested outside their home. You know, absolutely peaceful, massive demonstrations. You know, and so it showed we can do it. Similarly, about repeal the eighth. There was massive marches for choice every year. There still is. Tens of thousands of people get together, completely peaceful, you know, huge expression of, 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 of anger and love. And you look as well, remember back to, people might remember Apollo House in 2016, the yeah. occupation of the empty NAMA building. You know, you look at the, the protests that happened around Mountjoy Square in 2019, the occupation of the empty buildings. And that's another issue. You know, you talked about the, you know, the... Uh, the but that the occupation lockdown. was met quite violently by, uh, by, by the, exactly. the police who stood the, back as private security guards kicked people's did. heads. And, and you talk about violence. And, uh, you know, there was... There's, there's the fucking violence, yeah. There's, there's evictions going on in this country with dogs and guys in, in black, um, bloody yeah. blacked out hoods. You talk about violence. You know, there's a structural violence that has been, you know, <laughs> inflicted on a generation, on particularly those young, you know, children and young people who are homeless. But that is not a reason. We should not respond with violence. And also you talk about the need for, like, the, the violence and kind of anger. And where does the anger go? Because my, the fear now what's happening is the anger has been directed towards migrants and refugees, rather than actually seeing the housing policy. Like, there's really nasty, far-right people who are whipping up you know, amongst people who are really, you know, so angry about the housing crisis are excluded from it. And they're saying, oh, it's all the migrants coming in here. It's the refugees that cause the housing crisis. You know, that's what, what do you say stop. to that? Because that's a question that I get asked a lot when I bring you on. What is the straight up answer to that? The straight up answer is that there are countries like Finland that have has that have had as much in migration as we have. And they don't have a housing crisis because their state builds enough homes for people. And also, they don't allow the level of dereliction and vacancy that we allow. Like, I, since I was last on your podcast, there, the census 2022 results came out, which showed that there are 166,000 vacant homes. And would you believe 48,000, almost 50,000 homes were vacant in 2016 as well? So they're long-term long vacant. You add then the derelict properties, that doesn't even include derelict ones, tens of thousands. There are enough homes for refugees and for you know generation rent for homeless Irish people. There are enough homes. But what's really, really worrying for me is that the government is playing into it by saying we can only do this and we can only do that and we're limited what we can do. That just allows the space then for the right to grow. And this is fascism again. This is back to you blame the migrants for the problem and you divert the, the anger away from where it should be, which is government policy failure. And to people who are already victimized. The most vulnerable, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that that is one of the more important, again, another reason why people should protest is because we have to stand together. We have mm. to stand with our new Irish, with the Irish who are here, who are born in this country, all together and say, we need a housing system that where everyone can have a home as a human right. And that is how we will, you know, grow, grow as a country. Um, and I think as well, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the psychology of protest and, 
there is something in it as well that it suits government for us to think like this because it's it's a way that you know we stay passive we stay quiet we stay off the streets we don't make noise we don't complain and then they can say oh you know we're doing okay no one's really given out about it and the other thing is people then emigrate because they feel despair they don't feel there's any hope Whereas if we get momentum around a protest movement like equality, like marriage equality, like repeal, we can get momentum and say, no, we're not accepting this. We want you to stay here to the young people. Don't emigrate. Stay and let's build this country with homes through a state construction company that would give people long term permanent jobs through, you know, bringing the vacant and derelict homes Mm -hmm. back into use. Through setting up a modular home factories, these are these rapid build. We could be building thousands of them. What's your opinion on the modular homes? I think it's great. It's a great idea. These are homes that can be built in a matter of weeks in a factory. They can be mm-hmm. put up um, in a site. They're much cheaper. They're, you can build them for about 100000 a home. Is it appropriate public. housing? It is. Absolutely. It is housing. It's, it's not the modular of the past. Okay. Modular housing can now be built to high standard long-lasting. It is actually better environmentally. It is much Mm -hmm. less waste, much less carbon emissions from it. It is green housing. It sounds like it it also, you don't need as much construction workers. No, you don't. No. But the other thing as well, modular housing doesn't fit into the model of commodification because I can't imagine, that's not a great investment, is it? Well, exactly. And it's, it's much, much cheaper developers yeah. don't make the same profit from it mm-hmm. and and this is part of it the and you can build on a scale you can build rapidly on a huge scale and they don't want this like i was debating um but that uh, causes all the other houses to go down in value doesn't it exactly mm-hmm. and, and and the thing about it is we could be building you know and providing through modular homes to state construction to contract in the private sector and i made the point that during covid you might remember the private health system for a period of time was brought into the use of the public health system because we mm-hmm. faced a health emergency. Yeah. yeah, I think if I was Minister for Housing, I would be holding an emergency summit and I would be telling the private construction industry for a period of time until this housing emergency is over, you work to provide homes on an emergency basis for people. And there's no more hoarding. There's no more just deciding whether you build or not. The capacity of the private sector needs to be put to meet the housing need of people, not Mm -hmm. the market viability, the profit levels. Like one private development company made 100 million in profit last year from selling 1,500 homes. That's 66,000 euro profit per home. Mm-hmm. And the profit didn't go back to reinvesting in housing. It went to international shareholders. Yeah. Like, that's, that's just a system. That's not about homes. That's, that's about profit. And, and with, with, any, with any opinion that you express here, because the thing is, I'm conscious of my, my listenership. I'm going to have a lot of listeners who are nodding their head and completely agreeing with you, Right. But I always learn every time I have you on or any time I have you at a live podcast, I always end up with a few comments from people who are probably fucking landlords going, I fucking disagree with everything he says. And what I always think a decent solution to that is you just propose there will say um, that the government would 
go to the private sector as it as it did during COVID with the health sector and say, you work for us now for, a, for an emergency period of time. Where was that done before and where has it worked in other countries? Well, I think if you look at it, the model that I just explained there was during COVID and the private health system. Yeah. They went into the private hospitals and they said, they went to the owners of the private hospitals and they said, we need your capacity. So basically, we're contracting you to provide mm-hmm. if we need public health. They're still getting paid. They still get paid, they do. And they hammered out an agreement in terms of the cost of that. So it would be the same principle. But who has a country done that with housing? I, I don't know if a country has done that in housing. No, I don't know. And that's, you know, a reasonable question. But I suppose the model is there from the health system. And okay. what other countries do is we look at Helsinki, for example, in Finland, they do have a public construction company. Um, and I think, you know, if we look at, for example, we do also contract builders in this country, you know, the, pri- the public sector, local authorities, housing bodies, contract builders, private builders to build. And I agree with you, you know, there are different views around this. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think... Because that's would, why I'm asking the tough questions this yeah, time, no, Rory, is because I, I, want, I want everyone on board for this. No, so do I. I it shouldn't be divisive do. for anybody. No, it shouldn't be. But it, I think there is a real need for an honest, um, real, I would say, real conversation, real discussion with those who own vacant properties, who own you know, land, who have capacity to build, and saying, is it right that you are not using that and it is not being used to provide homes? And I said it is allowing that vacancy dereliction, uh, vacant land, not... Legalized vandalism. But it's like hoarding food in a famine. And I think that there is a real question about, is it right? And I actually believe most of them would go, no, it's not, actually. And we do need to change how we think about this. You will have a minority will bang up and down, going, oh my God, you're infringing on our right to make profit from housing. And we'll go, yeah, okay. You can express that view, but you know what? As a society... We are deciding that until we actually want to save this country, we want to provide a future for our kids. And we are going to do this very, very differently. We need a huge, you know, a, a massive change in our approach to housing, to see it as home. Like, what are we doing, blind boy, if we can't provide people homes? Like, what is the point of it all? Because mm-hmm. that's the, as you say, that's the safe base. That's the... It's 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 no different to a, a little child, the development of a small little child. The child who feels safe and secure is the child who feels comfortable to curiously play. And the child who doesn't feel safe and secure does not explore and doesn't yeah. develop. Exactly. And adults are the exact fucking same. And home, not just a house, n- not owning your own gaff, simply the confidence of at least I have these four walls around me and I'm not, the wolf isn't at my door. Once you have fucking that, then you have this ability to achieve meaning, to have better mental health, to plan for your future, to feel safe. But if the fucking, the wolf is at everyone's fucking door if you're a renter in this country or if you, most people with mortgages. And when the wolf is at your door, you're not secure and you're not emotionally regulated. You are vigilant and frightened and that impacts fucking everything i always compare it to every single 90s sitcom that i can think of 
whether it be Friends, whether it be Seinfeld, whatever. No one ever spoke about their fucking rent. And what you have is all of these characters who are trying to cope with how mundane and boring life is because everything is secure. And I kind of like that. I think that's fantastic. I'd love to be bored and to have space to explore because nobody's worried about getting booted out of their house. Yeah. And not just the boredom. The space. That might have been a bit too much of a, <laughs> a tangent there talking about friends in Seinfeld, but you're not a crack. No, 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 it's not at all. It's I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there's almost a yearning for boredom because, as you're right... You a yearning bored. for boredom, that's it. A, a yearning for... People would love to be bored. Love to have the space to be able to just think and, and to, you know, yeah. be creative, to, to do, pursue the things that give them meaning in their lives. and. It is not just the renters. As I've said, there is a generation stuck in their parents' home. This is what I want to speak about, the hidden homeless, as you call it, Rory. Yeah, the hidden homeless, are. which is what we don't, because there are people who kind of don't self-identify as homeless, but their material conditions are actually homeless. And I, I, sp- I write about this in my book because I spoke to them for the research for it. And it was really interesting because psychologically they find it harder to talk about their situation than renters do. Because in a renter, your relationship is with a landlord who you mm-hmm. might or might not get on with, but they're not related to you. And you can give yeah. out about them and it's fine. But yeah. when your landlord is in a sense your parents, you can't give out And they might be doing it for free. Them. And they're yeah. doing it for free. Or, you know, maybe you're contributing something to cost or whatever. But the point is you're there by their, their goodwill. And... Mm-hmm. You feel that talk, you know, giving out about your housing situation or complaining about it is somehow makes you ungrateful. You also mm-hmm. don't want to upset them because, you know, they, mm-hmm. they mightn't be aware of the level of, you know, stress you're under or worry about it or fear. Mm-hmm. There's also the thing, you know, do you think your parents think you're a failure because you're still at home? Yeah. And, there's, and we have learned, we had, the thing is too, we have been conditioned to... If you live at home with your parents and you're over the age of 20, you're a fucking loser. Yeah. And that is the message that I have <laughs> learned now. since fucking childhood. Yeah, that's what we are and told. It's hard, to, it's hard to shift those messages off. It, it's hard it, to not internalize something that society has told you. A lot of people listening to this podcast grew up in the fucking Celtic Tiger, where we were told to be a success, to be a meaningful human, a meaningful citizen, is to own not just one house, but two or three. And now look at us. So how are we not supposed to feel like fucking failures when that's the message that we've been handed down, the incorrect message from society? Exactly. Absolutely. How are you not supposed to feel like I have done something wrong, that I have failed as a person? And you don't think that impacts on people's self-esteem? Of course it does. And their sense of self and what that means, and then, even say- that, like even in a head, it's it's hard to maintain sense of self living with your fucking parents, regardless of the circumstances. Because when you live with your parents, you you kind of infantilize. You return to your family of origin emotionally. Of course, you you, you're not leaving it, and uh, and mm-hmm. you know people describe as you know they're you know when you're twenty six, twenty seven, and your parents are saying to you when you're they hear you going up to bed, you go, did you brush your teeth? Yeah. Text me when you're out, you know? Yeah. Oh, I have to text my parents when, I, when I'm going to be home. Oh, I better not stay out too long. I can't bring anybody home. You can't yeah. have a relationship. As you said, where do you have sex? 
You know, yeah. these the most basic things. How do you have relationships? How do you, where do you have the mm-hmm. space and time? And then we know as well that there are, again, tens of thousands of multiple families living together. It's not just the, the adult kid on their own living with parents. It's, it's families moving back in. And people are That's having true, to yeah. divide up their turning living rooms into bedrooms. Yeah, or the fucking log cabin out the back garden. Or, yeah. They, like, this is just, this is, it's beyond anything we've seen before. Let's speak as well something that, since the last time I had you on this podcast, which I believe was 2020, I believe, something which also, what, that we're seeing emerging is students not able to attend college. I've seen landlords rent out fucking tents in their gardens to students who are attending university. Yeah. These are people also who, can you speak about what the impact on people trying to just attend university and they can't get accommodation? Yeah, the, the kind of COVID masked, you know, these, the kind of crisis going on and, and worsening. Um, because during COVID, obviously, people went, you know, it was back, people stayed in their homes, college went online for a fair bit. And it yeah. has only been this kind of since last, since September, um, that this crisis, the student accommodation crisis, really became revealed again as how bad it is. It is just like unbelievable. Like I, students in my class, you know, are saying we're commuting four to five hours to get mm-hmm. to lectures. People are dropping out of courses. We had people. Oh, of course, you're a fucking lecturer, man. So you're seeing this <laughs> firsthand. I am. You might forget that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People are dropping out of masters or masters courses. You know that you do a masters after the, the yeah. uh, an undergraduate, um, because they can't find accommodation. Like this is just like people are actually they're they're working more. They have to work more in terms of jobs. Students aren't just working one job; they're working two jobs to try and cover the rent. As I said, they're commuting massive dif- distances, which means they don't get that college experience. You know, and people poo-poo that and say, "Ah, what's that?" But yeah. No, that's important. That's a fucking essential part of, of, of that's the transition period of becoming an adult. Exactly. But otherwise, university, It's where college, you find yourself. You find, but it's also college um, and university just becomes this utilitarian thing. I'm just going to get an education and a skill that gets me a job. Which is fucking harsh shit. Like I went to college, Rory, and like I went to college for four years and did a degree in graphic design. I am not a graphic designer. I have no fucking interest in being one. But what I learned in college was discipline and it had nothing to do with the course, the experience of being in college, the experience of the responsibility of deadlines, not having my arse wiped like I was in school. (laughs) That's what fucking stood to me, not necessarily the course. So people who say there, you're just going there to get an education. What stood to me wasn't necessarily the qualification I got, but the experience and the process of doing it, that's what stood to me. Yeah. And, and it also, what it is, is it gives you, it's supposed to expand your thinking, you know, ex- give yourself space and time to think critically about the world and your and space place. to fail. And you're exactly space to fail, space to be yourself, is where figure out your place in the world. And you can't do that. If, as I said, you're commuting five hours a day no. to go in for, you know, a few hours of lectures and then you're gone again, 
You're not engaging no with the college societies, with other people. It's also the social aspect of it. There's Why? no crack. You need, you're allowed to have crack in college. Crack is an important facet of being a human and crack is. is being removed. Where's the house parties that you're like, you know, doing all sorts at, you know, being yourself and, you know, learning what are your limits and learning what your limits aren't. And it, it's yeah. just, and it's, it is, it, it's, it's removing that, you know, college experience which is life experience and also people who are it's 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 worsening inequality of access to college and university as well because it is those people who are hit hardest by the cost of living crisis you know they can't pay the cost of fuel to commute they can't pay the rents so they're the ones from disadvantaged backgrounds who go no i can't do this it's too much so college becomes more unequal in terms of its access again so, but even the rich kids can't do it now because the, yeah, the proper and, the housing no, doesn't even exist. Yeah, and and the and you know people go on. Oh, we've you know the government goes on saying, oh, we've loads of student accommodation been built in the last five or six years, but it's all been built by investor funds. That was their model: investor funds who build these hugely expensive student accommodation that no you know normal uh, student from Ireland can afford. And yeah, you know this is not this is not actual student accommodation. They had no fund for universities or third level to go build their own accommodation. They had no plan for it. They just said, ah, the private market will sort that. So is is it mostly, uh, we'll say, very wealthy international students who are availing of that type of student accommodation? It is, or wealthy Irish students or yeah. families who can probably not really afford it, but are putting everything they have into yeah. it to cover it. So it's more, but, uh, you know. So it's becoming like, like college in America where, yeah. like, one of the beautiful things about Ireland is that you could go to college and not be left with terrible debt. Yeah. Because if you leave a college student with terrible debt, then that student can't go on to, they don't have space to fail in their chosen field. <laughs> you could be very conspiratorial about it. Now, I know it's this is going a bit of a left field on it, but, um, you know, when students don't have time and space to think critically and get involved in protest. <laughs> <laughs> No, but like you think, like this is the the generation who are now, you know, who, who had the massive climate strikes, and um, yeah. you know, who organized that, who are, you know, really politicized. They are the generation who are looking at. They will be living as we are already, with the results and impacts of climate change, of failure of, you know, governments to make any real, you know, change around that of, you know, of of the, the kind of commodification of our very existence through social media. That's a great point, Rory, because college is also where people find, people become radicalised in college and people find their politics and people find their ideals in college and they meet other people who are that way and they become activists in yeah. college. Yeah. So that space is, is also being targeted when you have students who uh, can't meet their basic needs. When it's been, whether it's been targeted or not. <laughs> Okay, and yeah, I actually, right. I actually won't give them the credence. Impacted, of, impacted. <laughs> oh, exactly, of thinking that logically. Um, they, they, I, I would, don't think they have the capacity to plan it that much. But the, the uh, so I was only joking about that. It's not a real... Of course. <laughs> but, but it is, but it, it might not be a target, but it's an observable outcome. And exactly. It's, it's, it's a result. It's what's happening. It's a consequence of it. So you wonder why isn't there, you know, huge, massive student protest? Students don't have the time. They're not involved. They're not able to connect. They're not able to organize because they're not in those spaces in the same way. And there mm -hmm. is a certain amount of that as well about the, you know, protests now during COVID had a massive impact on people, massive. People were isolated, are isolated. 
And people are only kind of coming back together in the last few months. And there's a real sense that, you know, because people say, oh, where are the protests? And you're going, well, we've just been through a global pandemic. And people were very isolated. People were, People you know, are tired as well, man. Tired. Absolutely tired. And they, there was a certain amount as well during COVID, there was a hope that something might be different out of it. You know, there'll be hope that, mm-hmm. you know, all these things that we said, we'd all come together as communities, you know, public health, you know, we think differently about our values. It's not all about, you know, you know, profit, commuting, work. That lasted for about a month. It lasted about a month. Yeah, it did. Yeah, unfortunately. because it was a beautiful moment at the start of the pandemic yeah. where there was this collective sense of hope. And then it's the thing it of- just started to fall apart. Yeah, and and it, it fell it, apart, I- to be honest, because from just from my opinion, it's when the government started giving mixed messages and not adhering to promises they made. And when the government gave the public the feeling that we are not in control and we don't really know what we're doing. As soon as that happened, the collective goodwill dissipated and people separated into different camps. They did. And they also didn't use it as a chance for a profound change in how we run our societies and our economies. Like there was things like we talked about inequality, We talk, even home, for example, like during the pandemic, there was the massive inequality revealed between those who had, you know, big, you know, homes yes. and offices to be able to go back to and others yeah. who were living in overcrowding, who didn't have yeah. homes to go to. You know, homelessness fell during the pandemic because Airbnb yeah. didn't exist. All these properties were freed up and we suddenly yeah. go, oh, we can find homes for people. And then they didn't follow through on that. They didn't say, okay. We saw what happened there. We saw what we can do. And, they, and you know, an Airbnb is another example of this. You know, the, yeah. the amount of homes that are, you know, been rented permanently on that basis and should be actual rental homes. But even that, that notion of us being together and, and the, you know, the, the welfare payments, the PUP payments, for example, cutting them back and the state itself saying, we will do whatever we need to do to address this crisis. And you go, they should have followed on that to, into housing and going, we're going to follow this now whatever is needed. But they went back to, they just said, let's go back to business. Let's back. go back to how it was beforehand. Exactly. And another thing as well, I think you mentioned to me before, Rory, that Airbnb are kind of, their plan is nearly to become renters or, or their plan is is the, not necessarily to be just for tourists, it's to, it's to rent to people. Yeah. The, the Airbnb CEO spoke about this. Yes, that's it. Um, where he talked about Air, Air, they want Airbnb to, the, to be the future of not holiday homes, but people's living. And you think, you stop, that makes you stop and think, what, what are they talking about? So what they're thinking about is people would go to work in a city, you know, on a number of days a week basis or a number of months a week, or they go, and people go, oh yeah, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? But then you follow it through and you think about it and then you go, okay, so if more and more homes are only available to rent on a three or four day basis, and what he said very explicitly was, we, you, you would be getting rid of the landlord-tenant relationship. Through, yeah, there you go. And then with that, you get rid of rights. Exactly. That he said have. you would no longer have leases. So it's, so, what ha- it's what Deliveroo and Uber do to their workers by effectively not having them as workers, but let's do that to people who rent now. Exactly. Let's change the definition and words of what a renter is to effectively strip back rights that already exist. Exactly, because exactly. Airbnb sees 
this is their market. They could turn tenants into Airbnb, whatever they call them. What's a person who who uh, goes on Airbnb, who lives off, or not who lives off it, but I don't know what. Probably a guest. A guest, I mean, exactly. I, I saw, I saw exactly this in, the, in yeah. the UK. Uh, I did a BBC series where we investigated uh, the housing market in the UK. And what we investigated were several companies who were doing this. And they weren't, people weren't renters, they were members of a club. So you're getting a, you're, you're renting effectively, but your contract does not say that you're renting. You're a member of a club. And they were using, the, the law that they were using was holiday letting rather than renting. And what meant was, is people were being exploited. People didn't have anyone to complain to if something went wrong in their house because you're not a fucking renter. And this contract says that you're actually just a member of a club and we can do whatever the fuck you want. And it was the most marginalized people with poor English who got exploited into yeah. this and were left in serious debt. And it was really, really dishonest. And it left me terrified because this was only happened. This was 2018 in the UK. And I was going, someone's going to do this on a bigger scale. Exactly. And that's what they were thinking, that it's you move from being a tenant to a guest. And you where yeah. you've no rights whatsoever. You're on a limited basis. And it's like, and you're actually seeing that increasingly being advertised in Ireland on the likes of Daft. It's a five-day wow. let, a three-day wow. let, you know, a six-month let. And so it's this huge increase in insecurity. And this is the fundamental point that I make in the book, um, which is that so much of our lives are becoming more insecure and kind of commodified all the time. Like, you know, with social media, with corporations trying to commodify our, our very, you know, um, attention mm -hmm. to, you know, jobs being on contracts, that the mm -hmm. place, it becomes even more important that we have a base of a home from which some way we can have independence. But of course, I make the point. So just, just to make, just to, sorry to interrupt now, Rory, just to, to drive the point home. So we're all already familiar with this for years when it comes to employment. People will get laid off and then those full-time jobs with contracts and rights are gone. And instead, they offer people these short-term contracts where you have no security in your job whatsoever. They want to now do this with housing. Yeah. They want to do this now with housing. Exactly. And, and this is the point that, in, in a way, when you're living in insecure housing, you want to, you're becoming more than likely to get, try and spend money getting lost in the world of virtual reality. And, you know, you, you want to. And <laughs> yeah, you got to look at the metaverse here. You got to exactly. look at the fact that Facebook, one of the biggest uh, companies in the world, is investing billions in this metaverse. And I have seen someone bought a property on the metaverse for something like 200 grand. I saw them doing it online. This is a virtual house that somebody spent 200 grand on. And exactly. And like, I don't know if anyone's watched, uh, you've probably seen it, Black Mirror on Netflix. Yeah. You know, the, these, you know, they're the, the thinking of, you know, people basically go into, I'm sure it's back to the avatar idea. You know, you go into the this virtual reality world because your your own world is so crap and they make money from that then. They make money from the advertising. They may make money from you logging into I mean, I've done it already myself, Rory. Like, I, I, I had a loan on one of those um, virtual reality headsets. Yeah. And when you use Netflix on that headset, you're still watching Netflix, but you're in a better house. Yeah. I'm so I'm sitting down on a nicer couch with a nicer view and this huge screen in front of me. Then I take it off and I look around and I'm like, oh shit, I'm in Limerick. 
<laughs> I know, I know. I'm too afraid to put one on. I'd be, I'd be like, oh my god, what, what, what will, where will the world go to? What will? Yeah. You're right because that is it. You get lost, and they want us to because that is the ultimate commodification. It is the the turning our attention into a business. They want to capture every bit of us. Whereas a home, having a home is almost the biggest bit of resistance we can make to that. Well, it's because the last thing. It's it home, the and then after thing. that, also water, things like that, yeah. things that we take for granted. But if you have a home. You have a space to be yourself. You have a space to develop, a space to be secure, to be an artist, to be a teacher, to be whatever you want to be. And you can, and you have a space within which you don't have to just try and escape into mm-hmm. that world. You can be in this, in this real world, you know, in, in the world with us together. And that is part of it, you know. Again, we come back to the protest. Why is a protest important? And why is it us coming together? Because as human beings, we can come and be alongside each other and see we're not alone. And experience a feeling of hope as a well. A feeling of hope, of, of togetherness. And, and like, there's nothing like describing the feeling of solidarity when there are thousands of people there together. And you do feel something, like it raises the hair in the back of your neck. You go, mm-hmm. you have a power here. Because that's the other thing. We do have a power. Yeah, we do. The government is, is absolutely terrified that there would be a massive protest movement in this country around housing because they know mm-hmm. it's the issue they're likely to lose the next election on. And mm-hmm. if people make noise, and, and an example of how it can actually bring change, why it's like, you know, people feel, oh, what's the point in getting out? You know, what's the point? Going out there? It's not going to change it. And the government yeah, and it's November well. as well. Like It's November. It might be pissing rain. And Whatever. you know, one thing I'm legitimately worried about, and this is nuts, Rory, I'm legitimately worried about, all right, 26th of November, at normal, at average people are going to be going to this protest some people will, like if someone from Limerick or someone from Tipperary, they might actually say to themselves, I'm going to go up to this protest, right? But it's the 26th of November. Fuck it, I'll get a bit of Christmas shopping done in Dublin as well. And they won't be able to find a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> like that's legitimately, like there are people yeah, who that, are going to go to the protest yeah. and go, well, I'm in Dublin as well, so I might as well do a bit of shopping. Yeah. I might make a day of it. And the, what they're no protesting way. for, they won't get a fucking hotel. Yeah, yeah. No, it's mad. It's mad, yeah. The accommodation Which is Which is there. a real problem. It is. Because not is. everyone wants to go up to Dublin and come straight down. Is, absolutely. Like, yeah, not everybody right. wants to do that. Yeah. And some people might, might go to the zoo, bring the kids to the zoo, whatever. Why you not? Know? Exactly. Human beings have to live lives. And exactly. I'm assuming this is a weekend, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a Saturday. It's a Saturday. Yeah, yeah. People if it was me, I'd want to make a weekend out of it. But yeah. I won't. See what because gigs are on. I'm not getting a fucking hotel. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah, it is. But here's the other thing. You don't just have one protest. Actually, really important point. Sorry, before you go go on. The the, the idea of what will change and does it change anything? There was two things this government said they weren't going to do. One was reintroduce the ban on evictions from the private rental sector. Yeah. The other one was a vacant property tax. Yeah. Yet, what have they done in the last two or three months? introduced a vacant property, a vacant homes tax, very small, but they introduced Mm -hmm. it and it's not effective. It won't be effective enough, but they introduced it and they've brought in a ban on evictions in the private rental sector until next April. Both of those things they said they wouldn't do. Why did they do it? Because people like myself, the housing charities, um, other, you know, opposition, the public have called for it and put pressure on them and they felt they had to do it. And also the housing crisis has got so bad. There was families turning up uh, homeless who have been told we don't have emergency accommodation and you have to go to a Garda station. 
There's families sleeping in guard stations. Fuck. The crisis has got so bad, you know, there's families sleeping in tents alongside that crisis. But the reason why they, they, they've had to respond is because of public pressure, public anger, the issue being raised. So it shows they can be made do things that they don't necessarily have much will or interest in doing or feel that they can do. And that is the power of people saying, we want you to do this because mm-hmm. it can make change. It does make change. In fact, you look down through history, the origins of public housing, of council housing, is in protest. The lockout in 1913 in this country, central to that was the issue of the tenements. The first social housing was built in this country because tenants were protesting against the big landlords. You know, across Europe, it's the same. Across the world, public housing comes from people, the trade unions in the early part of the 19th, um, 20th century, protesting. Like this mm-hmm. is, you know, things change when people stand up. You know, yeah. our democracy comes from that. The civil rights movements. You know, again, mm-hmm. back to repeal, marriage equality. We can change things. Things don't have to be like this. You know, the climate strikes, the protests, the young people out there. Like, remember when we saw them, it was inspiring. And, yeah. and, you know, so much has to happen around climate change. And, you know, people need to protest around that too. And I think in housing, we can bring them together because there's so much we can do around providing green, affordable homes, around retrofitting homes. Again, what a state construction company would do. But, but the other thing as well, and this is worth pointing out, people, I'm, I, people would like to be more active and to have more time to think about the climate emergency. This becomes difficult when you're dealing with a personal housing emergency. Yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. that's a fact. Yeah. And people go when, to you. When you don't know where you're living next month because you don't know whether your rent's going to go up, whether you're going to get evicted, you don't have time to think about much else other than that. And do you know what's even worse? And this isn't just Ireland. This is the, the, like, yeah, across, across this the, is around the fucking world. Yeah, they the say, housing insecurity is around the world. Yeah. As they say, you can't think about the end of the world when you can't think about the end of the week. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's absolutely true. But I think, and, and not that just, I think I know we can address both of those emergencies together in housing. And I give you an example, the private rental sector, there is you no can throw mental health into that too. Yeah, absolutely. You absolutely. Cause they're, in, in, inextricably linked and yeah. I was in talking to my son's fifth year class their politics class in, yeah. in secondary school and I was giving them a talk and I was struck by the level of I asked them what are the biggest social issues for them as teenagers and they spoke about anxiety social anxiety about climate about housing as well and I was just I didn't struck. have that word in fifth year men yeah I know that's what I was struck by and I could see them and they said, and they said, what's the point in it all? Where is the future oh, for us? Fuck. That's what they said. And I was literally, I was, I was, I was fighting back tears. That's a tough one. Yeah, that's very tough. You know, this was my son and his classmates going, where is the future for us? You never want to hear what's the point from a young person. And I just went, yeah, that's why we need to protest. That's yeah. why we have to, we have to give them a future around climate, around housing. And why protest matters is because it is people standing together saying it has to be different. And we're not going to let it be different. We're not going to be let it be like this. We're going to come together and give hope and mm-hmm. say, we're not going away and we're going to continue 
And we're going to bring this and meet these challenges together and bring everyone who we can together. Because what's the alternative, blind boy? Like, what is it? The alternative is, and there is a roadmap for things to get worse. That's yeah. the alternative. And, I, and I'm sorry to say it, but that's, that's the fucking roadmap. Because you, the thing that I always shit my pants over, right? And I've said this many, many times. Like you mentioned there about Airbnb and the CEO saying they want to change the definition of what a renter is, right? So that's just Airbnb. Who's buying all the fucking housing? Private private investor funds. My fear is people's landlords is no longer going to be a human being, but a corporation, a company. And these private investment funds are going to be corporate landlords and they're going to change the definition of what a renter is. And it's going to happen huge, huge, huge. And then no one has any rights anymore yeah. because you're no longer a renter. And if you don't like it, fuck off because we own all the property and we're a huge, big investment fund. And all that money just trickles up the people's pensions who are older. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing about it is that, the again, there are it doesn't have to be like this. One of the most important no. things I was trying to... You know, I've been talking about, we talked about before, it does not have to be like this. There's countries like Finland, like Austria, Denmark. They don't have this housing crisis. In this country before we built public homes, we can do it again. There's, you know, a not-for-profit housing company called Okulon Co-Housing Alliance. They're like a developer, but they don't make profit. They Mm -hmm. provide the homes at what they call the cost of building them. So they can provide homes at a hundred grand cheaper than the private developers. But nobody, you know, the government, the private market, they don't want people to know about this. That there's actually an other way of providing homes that are actually genuinely affordable that people can buy and rent. We yeah. have the land, we have the finance, we should be using these other ways of doing housing that can actually make sure people have homes. And, and also, uh, too, like, it, it's, a, it's, it's about changing the framework of how we think. Like, it's almost you're nearly making an argument for prohibition in a sense that I'm a giant investment fund. I want to buy an entire housing estate and I want to rent at however much I like and I want to cut uh, civilians out of buying those houses. No, that's prohibited. That's illegal. It's illegal because to do that, is a public massively impacts the public health of the community. So that's illegal. That's what I want to see. I yeah. think that should be illegal. It's, I want a prohibition model around what corporate landlords can do and go, no, that's illegal. And there's a good reason for that. Because if you can make drugs illegal, it's like, well, why can't we do it with rich bastards and housing? <laughs> But seriously, yeah, it's, exactly. the, the impacts are there. They, they're, yeah. they're, I, I can go to jail for smoking a fucking joint. But you, and, don't, and you don't go to jail if you don't register your tenant, if you exploit your tenant. Yeah. You know, if you don't provide proper housing, there's no landlords going to jail. If, like, yeah. it's, it's, it is incredible how we don't enforce the regulation, you know, the regulation ah, yeah, that yeah, exists. Yeah. Th- this is hurting and killing people. And, and it's just like... It's they just so wrong. wrong. And, 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 you know... I, the thing about it is you are, and, I, and, and we are really pushing out the boat here, but I think, like, my hope is the younger generations and the people who are affected, your listeners, they don't see housing as property investment. They see it as a home. And they're like, mm-hmm. 
I don't want fucking two homes or three homes or pro. I'm not going to wonder what's the value of my property. I just want a home that I can live in. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the, I think that's going to be the, that is the real driver of change. I think the change is happening. It's just politics and government hasn't caught up. Well, that's where most people are at. Like, I, I, the idea of speaking to someone in their 20s or 30s and them even referring to property as a commodity. Yeah. It's just like, no, I'm tired as fuck and I'm sick of renting. Can I, can I just have something or I'm willing to rent if it just means not getting absolutely exploited? I just don't want to think about this anymore. I want to think about my hobbies. I want to think about my life. I want to think about kids. That's where people, you yeah. know, I, and I want to think about not having to worry about this. I want to think about having a job that I enjoy rather than this job that I fucking hate because this is what I need to pay this rent. And There's talk, a lot of that. Some yeah. people, some people want to work a job that they like for less money because it brings them joy. That's being denied to people. And another bit of hope that I feel is that people are realizing like schools can't get teachers. Because That's another teachers, thing up in Dublin. That was a shocking, a shocking article that I read about a month yeah. ago where there's a shortage of teachers in Dublin because the teachers can't get gaffes. They can't get gaffes. And that's not just teachers. It goes to nurses. It goes to guards. It goes to construction workers. Like I'm getting contacted by construction workers, plasters, carpenters saying we're emigrating because we don't see how we can get a home. The construction workers building the homes are looking at wow. the home. I can't buy any of these. They're either owned by investor funds or they're at such a high price there's no way I'll be able to afford one or I don't mm. qualify for the social housing ones. And you go, mm. that's just... And, and the thing about, again, why I'm saying there's hope in that, in that people are finally realizing, even the people who disagreed with me up to this point, the economists, you know, mm-hmm. whoever, the conservative you know, thinkers and the, the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael voters who might have gone, ah, he's a bit mad, isn't he? Like, you know, they're calling for a state construction company. And, you know, they are now seeing that the economy, the country is being now in jeopardy because we've fucked it up so badly on homes and housing. And they realize something radical has to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so one final point, Rory, right? Because I said I was going to have you for a fucking half an hour and we managed to go into one hour, but I leave it at that because it was such a good chat. Yeah, but thanks. Final thanks so point, right? The, the fine details of it. When is the protest? What is it called? Where can people get information? Where do people meet? Yeah, so it's Raise the Roof. That, as I said, a cross-society coalition. It's going to be a peaceful march, a peaceful rally. There'll be speakers, musicians. One o'clock. On Saturday, 26th of November, Parnell Square, Dublin City Centre. It'll go on, for, go on for no longer than an hour or two. Bring your kids, bring family, bring friends. Please, if you can, make it. If you can't make it, get onto social media. Join the and hashtag. Boost it. boost it. And there will be more. Because that's the other thing too, and that's what's important as well. We live in a digital age, so not everyone's going to be able to make it to this protest. But if you, even if you're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram that day, and you are boosting photographs of the protest, boosting support, that's valid, that's really valid. Exactly. It It makes it something that cannot be ignored. Exactly. You share it and say, I support this. 
That's all. And I remember that do. from the water protests. Yeah. And, and ha- we have to remember the water protests worked. They did. Sure People we went out and protested and now our water didn't get privatized. That fucking worked. And the water protest wasn't just people getting out there physically. There was a huge amount of online protesting too. And that really worked. And it made things incredibly visible. And, and the other thing people can do as well is there is a petition um, that I set up as part of my book called Gaffs for All. And it's on Uplift. And there's 10 mm-hmm. solutions that I set out that I call on the government to introduce. If you could go on sign that petition as well. There was a great response to the last petition we had. We, I got almost 40,000. We got almost 40,000 signatures to the, the one against the vulture funds and that was calling for a right to housing referendum, which it looks like we might have. But the solutions are on that. If you can, go over, sign that petition. So that's another thing you can do if you can't make And I'm assuming too, Rory, this isn't the, this isn't the last protest. I'm assuming no. you're going to do this and then you plan more. Exactly. And what I'd like to see as well, Rory, What I mentioned there is I'm fearful of the person from Tipperary, the person from Longford who can't make it. Uh, Like where, when are we going to see this nationwide? Is this going to be the first? And then you've got your raise the roof in Limerick, in Longford, in Leash, uh, the whole shebang. Yeah, I hope so. I think so. It has to go that way. It It has has to to go that way. It has to to spread around the country. And imagine in the new year, there will probably be, like there was during the water protests, regional protests in cities and towns and days of action Mm -hmm. where people can come out wherever they wherever they are you know we have to and and it is also you know protest as well isn't just about the day itself which is so important it is about the conversations that happened then it is about the talk about what did they what were they looking for the solutions like we have to spread these solutions around discuss them and bring in people who don't agree with us you know and I, and as i said i do think we need to have this conversation. So you, you spent the day uh, debating on the radio, didn't you? With, with <laughs> I did. disagreed with you. Yeah, I was debating with, you know, Michael O'Flynn, the developer from Cork, a big developer around. And how did that go? You know, it was, it was challenging. It was, you know, I, I put across the argument as, as I've put across here and he was saying, oh, you know, a state construction company wouldn't work and it wouldn't add any capacity. And I was like, well, in actual fact, there's, you know, we're losing capacity of construction workers um, because they don't see any po- possibility of having a stable, secure job, which is what a public company could give them. Um, but, you know, I said as well that, as I said, you know, I think if I was Minister for Housing, you know, I would call a summit of public and private, you know, providers together and say, look, we need to come up with a plan together where we deliver homes. You know, I, I think that they realize, the private developers realize and and you know, people realize that we are in an unprecedented emergency. So things have to change. You know, we have to come together as a country and say, we need to put aside our differences and we need to work together and do things differently and make this happen. Um, And I really feel it is so dark right now for so many people in housing. It, It is utterly heartbreaking, the situations people are going through. But I think I feel it's a bit like the not to be too bullshitty, but it's a bit like the night is darkest, you know, just before the dawn. And I do feel yeah. that within this crisis, such depths we're in, that if we push hard now for a change, we can really make a difference so that we never have this crisis again. So we do have the changes. And I really feel that we can change this country and be part of it and at least say we didn't try anyway. At least we can't say we didn't try. Rory Harn, thank you very much for that wonderful chat it's called the raise the roof protest look it up on google this saturday the 26th of november 
Parnell Square, 1pm in Dublin. In the meantime, I'll be back next week with a hot take. Rub a dog, give a saucer of milk to a cat, show your ankles to a jackdaw. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.